Hello and welcome to True Crime People and Places, the podcast where we explore the world of true crime from an academic and personal perspective. I'm Linda Sage, a criminal psychologist with over four decades of experience working with some of the most dangerous individuals in the world. This is a fairly new podcast and we are developing the systems and growing our audience. So we appreciate your support and feedback. This podcast may contain discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. If you are sensitive to these topics, please be aware that this podcast may be triggering you. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please take a break and seek support from a mental health professional or support organisation. Hi and welcome back. I'm Linda Sage. This is True Crime People and Places podcast. And again today, I am really pleased. I've got a fabulous guest with me, David Wilson, who is Regional MS and Organised Immigration Crime Lead West Midlands ROCU. Now, David, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. We've started off with police jargon. So would you like to just clarify what that is? Yeah, so MS is modern slavery and OIC is organised immigration crime. So I am a retired police detective inspector. I now work for the National Modern Slavery and Immigration Crime Team based in Devon and Cornwall and funded by the Home Office. But we've got a rep in every region and I'm the West Midlands regional rep. So I cover West Midlands, West Mercia, Staffordshire and Warwickshire. This is a huge topic and I know in the time that we have on this podcast that we are not going to do justice but I think if we can just open a few eyes to the actual reality because I must admit until I started looking into this I actually had no idea as the size and the depth and just the sheer volume that's involved in this. It is absolutely massive and if you think it isn't in a town or a street near you you're absolutely kidding yourself. And I think one of the things is that people tend to see modern slavery and immigration crime almost as a silo crime, whereas in fact it is really just a piece of a much larger business model by big organised crime groups. So modern slavery will affect drugs, it will affect guns, it will affect sexual exploitation, it will affect absolutely everything in your town, in your area. Modern slavery, we use the word slavery, perhaps we, we are a little bit tunnel vision that we think back to the, the old slavery ways, but modern slavery is quite different, isn't it? Yes, it's something you wouldn't think exists in the 21st century, but absolutely it does. But it's an element of coercive control over people to exploit them, basically, to get them to work or do things for the financial benefit of the people controlling them, not their own benefit. And they don't have the option to say no or to move away or speak to the police or do a lot of things that you or I would do if someone tried to get us to do that. So, for example, if you've got someone who has come into the country, perhaps in the back of a lorry or on a small boat, whether that person is a good or bad person or not is irrelevant. You owe the group that's got you there X amount of money, let's say £12,000. And they're very, very violent people and they want their £12,000. So, so you are likely to do pretty much anything that that group asks you to do in order to pay that money off, you may have no criminal intentions at all or be an entirely decent person, be coerced into it through that coercive control of extremely violent people who owe money to. Modern slavery affects both UK citizens and foreign nationals as well. Yeah, it does. It does. In UK, modern slavery is more prevalent in vulnerable people. 
So young people without a support network, potentially people with mental health issues, people who've come into the country and don't have immigration status. The more vulnerable you are, the more likely you are to be exploited. In your opinion, obviously, you've been working in this. You've also done lots of other things as well, but you've been involved in human slavery for quite a while now. What are some of the major obstacles faced by law enforcement agencies and organisations working to combat this? When you look at modern slavery, especially at the higher levels, what you've got is either UK groups or transnational groups, and they don't operate in one police area. They operate over multiple police areas. So, for example, county lines where young people are forced to go to other towns and deal drugs. The basis of it will be in one force, but where they're being exploited may be in an entirely separate force area. Not all police staff have got access to national systems to link that up. When you're talking about transnational organised crime groups, you can't really deal with it with local intelligence. It's by its nature transnational. So you have to be looking at national or transnational systems. And sometimes not everyone who's got that access needs to it. Sometimes the police forces aren't talking to each other the way they should. That's part of my job. When I see those offences or those intelligence logs come through, I try to link everything up between forces and between regions. And the police force is getting a lot better at it. That's still a problem. Yeah. Getting victims to come forward and complain and make statements. So, for example, if you have got someone who's trafficked into the country from Albania or Romania or Southeast Asia, the people who are trafficking them and exploiting them here are exactly the same people who pick them up in their hometown. Very violent people. And if they speak out or if they don't do as they're asked, then their families could be targeted. So it becomes a very, very difficult set of offences to investigate. I'm just going to go back a bit there about the cooperation between different police forces and also agencies. Is this a major issue for you? I think the police forces or law enforcement per se has got an awful lot better. So you've got three levels of policing, really. You've got local policing, which is each police force. Each police force will be part of a regional organised crime unit. So if things get too big for a particular force or they operate in more than one force area, they can escalate that to the region. And about the regional forces, what you've got is the National Crime Agency. But inevitably, however good communication is, it could be better. And so we try and link that up. But the police force is getting an awful lot better at that. And national systems are getting better. But yeah, I, I would still say it's an issue with 43 different police forces, plus British Transport Police, plus the regional forces, plus the NCA. Not everyone can talk to everyone in the way they should at the time they need to do it. So getting better, but yes, yeah, still an issue. Obviously, with modern day technology and things like this, there's different ways of investigating now rather than as it was before. But when these people are basically non-existent in a, a system, how is it ever possible to actually know how many or who these people are? When you boil it down to what crime is about, crime is about money. So the financial aspect of it is very, very important. If you follow the money, then you'll generally find the right people. But those people also need to communicate with the people they're controlling and with the people up and down the chain of control. So communications, whether that be on the internet, whether it be by text, by WhatsApp, by other peer-to-peer communication groups, again, it's really important. So the money aspect is very important and the communication aspect and also the transport aspect is very important key issues so if somebody's looking at the key indicators or even red flags if you've got a business what are ways that you could actually identify if somebody's been put into your business or your supply chain in any way so a number of ways i guess really often you find people are exploited they're exploited in groups so for example if a group of people have come over from another country from europe one of the poorer countries there and they're working for a particular company they might be all staying at the same address. If you've got a couple of people or two or three people staying at the address, that's not necessarily a red flag. They could quite easily and legitimately be renting that premises 
themselves. But if you've sort of six, seven, eight people staying at the same address, the likelihood is that that's not their choice, really, and that their exploiters may be charging them sort of £800,000 a month each, all to stay, you know, four to a room in, in a substandard accommodation. So if you've got multiple employees with the same address, that would be a red flag for me. Or if you've got wages being paid into continue the same account, which might indicate that they don't get their wages, that somebody else gets them and then hands them out what's left after all the mass amount of deduction. If you've got a big company in a supply chain, it's very, very difficult to identify modern slavery when you're talking about foreign exploitation. But if you were sourcing a commodity from another country, if you have the facility to go and visit that country and visit the supply chain, that would likely give you a good inclination. I think it is quite amazing that there's lots of different ways of people coming here. People that I've spoken to, obviously, when they've been in prison, that they were told that they were coming to one job, they're brought over, and then they're actually then forced into some other type of employment or just doing what, as you said before, what they want to do. So is this a general way that they do this? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of ways, and that is one. People, Some people who come over are totally duped into it. They're told that they can have a better life with a better job here. And when they get here, that job is absolutely not what they expected. Their wages aren't what they expect or anything else. Some people, to an extent, through force of circumstance almost, do to an extent know what they're coming here for. But having said that, they are still exploited and often don't have any idea the level of exploitation they're going to get when they get here. All those people are absolutely victims that we need to identify and protect. It must take a huge amount of man hours and patience to actually pull a case like this together. Oh, it does, yeah. It is absolutely massive. But modern slavery legislation since 2015 has been quite strong. So pre-2015, if it was sexual exploitation, we would often prosecute people for managing a brothel. If it was a foreign national offender, they would likely get six months in prison. They'd be out in three. There'd be no deportation order. And we'd really just interrupted them is all we'd done. Uh, when we can convict people for sexual trafficking under the Modern Slavery Act, you will likely get a four to six year sentence and a deportation order. Uh, and you will likely have ended that person's journey in the criminal justice system in the UK. So it's a much more effective way. To, yes, they are. They are big jobs to do. They are really, really resource intensive, but also really worthy, not just from a legal aspect, but from a moral aspect as well. Yeah, you just spoke about the Modern Slavery Act. And to be honest, until I started looking into it, I didn't even know there was one. So I think for an awful lot of people, business people, they don't even realise that they are breaking the law in this way. Yes. So if your business has a turnover of 36 million or more, you are obliged to put in a modern slavery statement, which demonstrates what you've done to identify modern slavery within your supply chain. If you haven't, then you're not obliged to, but you leave yourself open if potentially you're employing people to work. That can cost you up to £11,000 per person. So if you do your due diligence, it's not only good on your conscience, but actually in the long term, it'll be good for your finances. That's fine for the big organisations, but there must be lots of areas of work that are quite easy targets, like the the fruit picking. I mean, this is just coming to mind for me. Or I think people, when people are quite transitory through different types of jobs. There's always red flags. Those red flags don't automatically mean that somebody's been trafficked. Mm. But if you've got foreign nationals coming to work on your farm for agricultural work, and there are eight to 10 of them all picked up in the same van and coming here every day, that might be an indication if they're all being brought in by the same person. How do those people react to the person who brings them? Do they appear subservient? Do they appear to be cowed or 
under the influence of somebody else or are they really happy-go-lucky people? There's a lot of indicators. No one is a cast iron guarantee that that person or those people have been trafficked. But just by observing people, you know when something is wrong and don't be afraid to act on that. If it's anything to do with agricultural work, the gang masters, GLAA, uh, great people to call. They're, they're the specialists in that. If it's something else, obviously call the police. But there's an awful lot of agencies involved in this. And there's an awful lot of help out there for employers if they want to reach out. It's good to know because I say I don't think a lot of people realise just how much is going into this. Oh, it, it's absolutely massive. Uh, over the last 12 months, West Midlands Police especially have run an operation whereby they visit massage parlours and suspected brothels. Mm-hmm. And what that showed is that sex exploitation is far bigger than we thought it was. And again, a lot of these places are in everyday streets, in every towns. And the, the level of it is, is quite amazing. If you are a neighbour or a local resident and you see lots of different men coming at different times of the day or night and they stay for like half an hour or an hour and then they're gone, it might be nothing, it might be something. But if you report it to the police, um, at least they can then check it out and potentially offer some assistance to the, to the sex workers over there. Obviously, the, the drug trafficking and all things like this gets a lot of news. But when you actually bring a case to court, do you find that the court and the sentencing represents all the work that's gone into bringing that case to, to justice? As long as we get it right with the offences we prosecute for. So like I said, if you prosecute under the Sexual Offences Act 1953, then you're likely not to get the result you want. But if you are willing to prosecute under the Modern Slavery Act, and most of the time we'll do that now, then yes, then you'll get a good sentence. And if we've got a foreign national, you'll get a deportation order. And so that person's journey is finished then, as yeah. opposed to just interrupting what they've done. And then as soon as they continue again. I know you've uh, done many different things. And as you said, you were a retired DI. So what sort of difference or changes have you seen over your, your time within the police service? Oh, I've seen a, a much closer monitoring of police officers, all sorts of things that were entirely acceptable and even routine practice back in the 80s when I started are now absolute no-nos. They talk about canteen culture and the jokes people used to play on each other. And I never felt that I suffered from that, but I know the, there was complaints over it and a lot of that, that has ended now. I think a lot of professionalization as well. So rather than people just gaining experience and getting good at things, there is a lot of professional qualifications now, things that are, that are widely accepted and officially recognised in terms of investigation ability, in terms of authorised professional practice. And how did you come to be choosing? Because obviously you've chosen now to be involved in modern slavery. So why did you choose this? Well, I retired from the police in 2017, and I went to work for a private company working contract to the Home Office in, in police intelligence and also other government intelligence projects, which sounds really, really interesting. But for me, having been um, an operational police officer, it just didn't do it for me. And I wanted to come back to something that I really felt I could put my heart and soul into, and my background was in intelligence. And I looked at the advert for this job, and I thought it was really something I could do and, and something I could really invest in professionally and emotionally. And that's one of the best things about being in the modern slavery space in policing is that pretty much everybody who's in this role is really, really passionate about it. There's nobody who just has a job's worth and goes around just doing the bare minimum. People involved in modern slavery are really, really passionate about what they do. And so I've got a great bunch of people to work with at the national team and and at local level as well. So, yeah, I came into it because I thought I could do a good job with it and it interested me and it was an intelligence role. That was a really good decision for me. It was definitely a a drop in pay to come from the private sector, but I'm just so much happier 
trying to make a difference in this line of work. Just going to your team and you, of course, your mental health, dealing with this type of criminal and criminality on a daily basis, how do you look after yourselves? Very good question. I think it's something that sort of coming from the 80s, it was something we just got on with. Even coming back after well, 35 years in policing, I've seen things in this job that really, really have brought tears to my eyes. And I have my moment, then I just bury it and move on. I don't know if that's a healthy way of doing things, but it's worked for me. Again, within the police force now, there is much more psychological help than ever was even imagined before. Yeah. Well, all the forces have really done a great job with that, you know, much better than it was before. However long in the tooth you get in this job, I don't think you can see some of the suffering of the people we've seen in some of the jobs we've investigated over the last three years have been back. If it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you just may be missing a bit there. And so you've said about how much has changed within the last few years. What do you see happening to this sort of department in the next 10 years to come? I think you will see modern slavery and immigration crime become a lot more mainstream. So if we go back probably 15 years, we looked at things like child sexual exploitation, and it was a bit of an outlier. And it took a while for the police to absorb that into mainstream policing. And I think you're really seeing the same with modern slavery and immigration crime now. I think even when I go back to when I joined the Regional Organised Crime Unit as the, the West Midlands rep back in 2000, late 2020, even in the last two and a half years, I think we've seen a really big step in the way they've accepted it. You know, we have an awful lot of jobs now that are involved in modern slavery that we're running and organised immigration crime. Whereas back then, a lot of stuff is guns and drugs. That's traditionally what police have done. Now I think there's a realisation that guns and drugs is absolutely linked with modern slavery and immigration crime. And it really is all one and the same. So if it is a worthy job, it is a worthy job and we take it on regardless of the crime thing, really. And I think that's where we're going. But I don't think modern slavery and immigration crime are going away. I think it's only going to become a more important part of what we do. And I think the police force is very much on the path to realising that. What about you, David? What's your future plans? So I finished my master's about 18 months ago in international intelligence and security. And I'm currently doing a PhD at Buckingham Uni in transnational organised crime. So I would like to do this probably up until I retire, which is about another 10, 11 years and then perhaps do some part-time work at, at universities as a lecturer. That would really suit me. I can't see myself ever retiring. I, it didn't suit me being out of policing when I went to work in the private sector. And in the end, I think they'll carry me out in a box. Well, I think that's an amazing way. And as you say, you've done so much. So new things coming along will be challenges for you that no doubt meet head on. I'll, I shall do my best. I've always seen myself as a public servant and um, I don't see that change. Just a quickie there, going back as an adult learner, how do you find the academic side of it? I think initially it was a little bit more difficult. There was a colleague of mine who was my ex-superintendent, actually, who had got a job as a lecturer in policing and intelligence studies, who convinced me to do it. And I said, oh, I'm 50, you know, I, I can't do this stuff. Too old. And he went, no, honestly, you can do this. And I did it and I found it really hard initially, but I also really, really enjoyed it. And I think if I look back on my younger self when I was in my late teens, early 20s, when most people go to university, I don't think I had the work ethic. I don't think I had the attitude to life that I've got now. And fair play to the young people who do do it and get through it and get great grades because I couldn't have done it at their age. I think even having a family now and having a full-time job, I still think it's easier than it would have been for me when I was younger. And I've only got a hunger for more the more I do. It's funny that, isn't it? Once you start unlocking the door, it's just like, oh, bring yeah. me some more. Time always gets the better of us. So I know it's a huge subject and we've only just scratched the surface. But if there are employers or if there's neighbours out there, what is the best way of them getting in touch with somebody? 
So you'll have a local Bobby, whether it's a neighborhood officer or a PCSO. You can always speak to them and get in touch with them. Or you can call 101. You can report it via 101 just on the telephone for policing. Or you can call Crime Stoppers and report it there. I mean, ideally, we'd like you to speak to the police force because that way we understand who you are. And understanding who you are allows us to grade your information better. So if we get something that is totally anonymous, then we grade it one way because you really don't know who you are. You could know this very well. It could be first-hand experience or alternatively, you could be someone who doesn't like the person you're reporting on or trying to get revenge. If actually we know you're the next door neighbor and you're seeing this going on next door and we know that you have got no ax to grind and have never featured on police systems, we might grade that intelligence differently. So if you're worried about any repercussions, then crime stoppers. But ideally, we speak to our local police officers or we go through one-on-one. Wonderful. David, thank you so much for being with us and for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's great information there. So for everybody else, thanks for being with us. And of course, always, if any of this subject has touched you or you've had any emotional triggers, please contact somebody, a professional that can help you get over this and move forward. So until next time, it's bye from me and I will be back with you next time. Thank you for listening to True Crime People and Places. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, please let us know. See you next time.